0: Hello and welcome to the 11th episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is Patrick, Mark and Graham discussing the music of the post-punk slash new wave movement of the late 70s and early 80s. And this time, for the first time, we're heading across the pond to America. Here's Mark to introduce today's band. Everybody, get in line.
1: Despite their success, Talking Heads made a career out of never really fitting in. With no discernible image or direction, apart from a desire to stand out, they emerged at the dawn of US punk that centred around New York's home to the unloved and odd bands that often couldn't get a gig anywhere else, CBGBs. With a sound that was defiantly clean, streamlined and deceptively simple, their look was also almost anonymous. Short, neat hair and tidy, sensible clothes. Very much at odds with the times and one of several influences more than a few Manchester bands would also embrace a few years later. In many ways, they were the template for English post-punk. Playing their first gig as a support at the venue in 1975, the trio performed songs about French-speaking psycho killers and people who were artists only, while headliners, the more direct Ramones, preferred to beat on the brat and sniff some glue. Never mind, there and then the uneasy alliance between the brittle, reductive heads and the emerging rough and tumble of the new wave was born. Over the period of 1977 to 1983, they released five groundbreaking experimental albums, with the only real constant being singer David Byrne's bleating vocals, abstract lyrics, and the band's growing willingness to experiment with sounds and rhythms. Along the way, they somehow sold millions of records, while thanks to the success of their 1984 concert film, Byrne also became universally known as the man in the big suit, a fitting metaphor for a band that didn't really fit either. They played the game their way from the very beginning, with an admirable non-conformity apparent in just about everything they did, from sound to lyrics to image to videos, and won. So the question we'll be asking ourselves today is, how did these very original outsiders eventually stop making sense and go on to triumph in their own revenge of the nerds? Very good. Happy just with that?
2: something I'd like to, you know, question. Not really?
1: question, just really? raise
2: as a discussion topic.
1: Okay. Bleating. You don't like bleeding. I'm not saying
2: I'm concerned about bleeding, but I'm just I'm just raising it as a, you know.
1: <laughs> well, I had I had an option of about 15 words to go with. <laughs> And um, you know, you being a wordsmith, mm, yeah. bleating was the one that kind of spoke to me.
0: How do you even begin to describe his singing?
1: Well, that's that's what I'm saying. There were so many words that you could really describe his vocal style, and it evolved over time too. It didn't. He, he always kind of yelped and sort of. Mm, it wasn't mm. your traditional rock star singing, shall no, we say, from no. the very beginning. There so, was definitely
2: some yelping coming in by about the second album.
1: Oh, for sure, for sure. Mm. Yeah, as I said, there's there's a lot of ways to describe it, but that's the one I'm going to go with, maybe.
2: Mm. Okay, so you're staking your reputation on bleeding Absolutely,
1: the huge reputation that I currently possess <laughs> is all riding on that word. But, um... oh, fair enough, fair enough.
2: <laughs> I suppose if we're going to talk about Talking Hands, David Byrne is always going to be the focal point. So if I can take you back to 1952, a time pre-punk, pre-rock and roll, before the big bopper. <laughs> Surely not.
0: Thought... First thought of bopping. I take it fifty-two. This is when he was born. <laughs> very good. <Yeah. laughs> I hope so. I was eventually getting to that. Yeah. Very slowly.
2: Uh, yeah. So David Byrne was born in Scotland, in Dumbarton, which is near Glasgow. And Dumbarton is regularly voted one of the most depressing places in the UK. But from my point of view, the most extraordinary thing about the place is a particular bridge, uh, the Overton Bridge, and a remarkable and tragic number of dogs have jumped to their death from a very particular point on this bridge. Uh, 50 in the last 50 years have that's jumped tragic. To, <laughs> to their doom and over 600 have jumped and have survived. Yeah, well, that's so, positive. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Some good, good news a, in this yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, it's a good news story. Yeah, yeah. Me? You're wrong.
1: I feel great already.
2: But um, <laughs> so it's just this extraordinary kind of idea of, of a particular spot on a particular bridge Bridge in Dumbarton, and I quite like the idea of a parallel universe in which a David Byrne who stayed in Dumbarton developed a Proclaimers-esque Scottish accent and wrote a song about this particular spot on this particular bridge, which seems like quite a David Byrne Mm thing to do.
1: I somehow think if that had happened, we wouldn't be talking about him today. <laughs> but the dog suicide bridge is great stuff. It's, it's a, r- a rare thing.
0: Yeah. I well, know you don't hear about dog depression all that much. It's no, not, no. It's, it's swept
1: under the carpet Graham. It doesn't get <laughs> it enough is. publicity.
3: No, no. So,
2: but I have seen footage of the bridge and you can't tell from a dog's perspective, I've done some research, that you will be jumping to your doom. Right. Because it's so a So maybe they're height. seeing
1: somebody waving a bone. Mm,
2: there is there is talk <laughs> of a particular aroma. Um, a scent Okay, was one theory
1: <laughs> that had been raised. And where's David Byrne fitting into this again? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in the dog bridge myself. Well, yeah, well,
0: so you're saying the dogs didn't know they were jumping to their death? That's my suspicion, yes.
2: Given the average height of a dog... Well, you're closer to that than Graham
1: or, or I, so <laughs> well, from a dog's as, perspective. As the,
2: as the most diminutive member of the trio, mm. I feel mm. comfortable in asserting what a dog can, can't see. <laughs> <laughs> okay. well, I'm anyway, not going to argue that with let's you. let's get back on track. I think it's time that we headed over to <laughs> North America where the Byrne family migrated. They migrated to Canada when David was two. His father was an electronics engineer for Westinghouse, I think, and they moved to Canada when he was two and then they moved to uh, the US to uh, Baltimore, I think, when he was nine. So at the age of nine, he uh, set foot as a permanent resident in the US and it's it's just interesting to think of someone who's been such a spokesperson on American culture over the decades that he actually, until he was nine years old, was not remotely American. Not American at all,
1: yeah. He's a foreigner. Donald Trump might have something to say about this.
0: (laughs) Anyway, but let's head over to the Rhode Island School of Design. (laughs)
1: Okay, now Rhode
0: Island, um, is this where the uh, members of the the band met?
2: Yes, indeed. Uh, Where Chris France and Tina Wamouth and David studied together, Rhode Island School of Design, Fine Arts, they might have been studying together.
1: Chris and and David started the band initially, correct, Mm. as the Artistics so oh, okay. Nice. It, it
0: had to be an arts degree they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't an engineering degree. It wasn't no, anything right. useful, no. <laughs> that's
2: right. And some people liked the artistics, some people didn't. Some people dubbed them the autistics. So <laughs> Harsh. Allegedly. Yeah. Uh, but then, uh, yes, uh, Tina,
3: Chris Tina was Yeah,
1: Tina was Chris's girlfriend. She was running around after the band, driving them to gigs and... And so on. And they were always looking for a bass player. I, I saw something where, where Chris would go down to the venues in New York trying to find a bass player, but no one was interested oh, really? in, in their stuff. <laughs> so eventually Tina rocked up one day and said, you know, I've bought a bass, you know, I, I wow. can play and, uh, and learn to play the bass. <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay, but do you still have that band? <laughs> <laughs>
1: still going to need a lift. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get to gigs. And if you could whip something up for dinner, that'd be great too. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. The so,
2: revolution hadn't reached Rhode Island at that stage. New York at that <laughs>
1: stage. So they were a trio initially, as I, I think I mentioned in my um, monologue. Yes, yes. At the start.
2: And then they um, moved to New York. And then what happened?
1: Well, they started doing gigs. I think they were, they were living quite close to CBG. It was only a couple of blocks away. Um, the first gig that they did was six songs in 75 supporting Ramones, which I still find a strange, you know, uh, bill. Yes. Put those two bands together, like, you don't really think of them as having any kind of synchronicity. Like, oh, th- these two guys, will, this will be great. Yeah. You know, yeah, they're like yeah. complete opposite ends of any kind of punk new wave spectrum that there might be. But CBGB's was it was a home for the outsider, really, yeah. you know, at the time. So
0: even though they were musically disparate, I guess. Um the, what's, what's the guy who started CBGB's? Hilly... Hilly Crystal? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He would have uh, welcomed them with open arms.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's right. Uh, but they actually played a lot together yeah, over yeah. the years. They, they toured, yeah, the, they toured uh, Europe, Europe together in yeah. early 1977, yeah. which, which must have been very confusing for all the, uh, the, the proto-punks of Europe to turn up to see the Ramones and, and this other band yeah. who looked and sounded, if anything, could be more opposite. Mm. Uh, yeah, well,
2: the band that looks like accountants, a bunch mm. of accountants, and the band that looks like some proper rock and rollers.
1: Well, the sound was really interesting, like, they refused to have that chunky guitar sound, for example, yeah, Talking yeah. Heads. They wanted a clean, clanking kind of sound. And, and David Byrne said something interesting. He said, "I wanted the sound to be like a machine where all the parts were visible. That you could, yeah, you could yeah, see yeah. everything that was, or hear everything that was going on in our sound. There was nothing disguised behind big power chords or distortion. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which it was. It was like a little watch ticking over. But you know, simply yeah. put, but you could see everything and hear everything."
2: The, apparently the acoustics at CBGB's were, it was a very dry room, it was low ceilings, a lot of furniture to kind of suck up the reverb and, and so on. And, you know, without getting too, too technical about it, it, it meant that, um, because I'm not capable of doing so, <laughs> um, uh, it meant that, that you could hear individual notes. Mm. So you wouldn't have notes being lost in echoes and I think that may have been part of how Talking Heads developed their sound because it Mm. was such a clean, clear, dry room and you could hear every note and their philosophy always was, well, as David Byrne described it, the kind of art school idea of you don't need to play 100 notes if you're playing the three right ones. Yeah. And that's a very kind of punk attitude, but Mm. David Byrne actually got it from a kind of an art school perspective rather than a rip it up and start again kind of punk Mm. aspect. But certainly the venue, the role that CBGB's played can't be underestimated either sonically, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the shape of the room or obviously the other bands who, who Talking Heads were playing with. This bang, mm. the absolute legendary punk underground venue of New, yeah. New York at the time. The
1: only other band like them were television. They were another CBGB's band. Yeah, but, but it's mm. interesting that the biography about the New York punk scene, which is Please Kill Me, Legs McNeil's book, apparently yeah. doesn't mention Talking mm. Heads at all, yeah. which is a really strange thing like, oh, to not mention true, yeah. them. like it's de- de- deliberate, obviously. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, speaking of the CBGB's room, I went there a couple of years back. It's now um, a clothing retail. A John place. Barvatos. That's the one. And I went in there and it is, like, it's just a closet of a room. Like, you can't imagine that any... That's
1: nice. It's a clothing store. Yeah, and it's a
0: closet of a room. <laughs> I, I get it. I like that. <laughs> and, yeah, but it's amazing they could get any decent sound out of that room at, at all. So, so is you,
2: it is it literally the whole... Of what used to be CBGBs.
0: Yes, they've retained a lot of the um, the walls. So there's all these flyers and things stuck up on the walls that are ca- stage? covered in glass. There's this stage, but the guy said that the stage has been moved. So um, obviously where the stage was wasn't good for retail, I think.
1: But um, I've replaced it with cash
0: registers. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> So um, it was great being in there because you could really feel the, yeah. the history and everything.
2: Were well, there like posters and um, stuff on the walls? Yeah,
0: the, yeah. the flyers. Um, you got a great feeling from the place. But as I said, it's a retail place now. And um, I jumped up on the stage and tried to body surf over the customers. And, uh, <laughs> no one was buying it. But no, <laughs> no I, I was escorted from the from the place again. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it was um, it was just great being there. So I, I recommend you uh, go there when there's a sale
1: on. <laughs> <laughs> Pick yourself up a pair of six hundred dollar leather trousers. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Is it fairly expensive? Oh yeah, yeah it's very expensive yeah. stuff. I mean, he kind of is a rock and roll guy. Yeah, you know, he, he's a big fan of rock and roll, so he he makes that kind of expensive gear, sells mm-hmm. to rock stars. Right. right. Um, I was yes. going to mention before the first album was recorded, though they did release a single.
2: Love goes to Building on fire. Which is on fire.
1: And it's quite a commercial kind of catchy sounding yeah. thing. Far more commercial and catchy than the subsequent album was. And yeah, yeah. Didn't do a great deal. Um, Psycho was, Killer is what people think of as yeah. the most, yeah. the first single, but it's actually the second single. Yeah, which which was on the album.
2: It wasn't very punk. No, either. So like that first single, and in fact, Talking Heads weren't that interested in punk. I mean, David Byrne said that the bands he was saying at CBGBs were like a sloppier version of the Stones and the you know, the outfits they were wearing. I mean. The Ramones, for instance, were were wearing pretty standard sort of rock mm. clobber.
1: Long hair, ripped jeans, the usual yeah, stuff. Yeah,
2: so they were interested in doing something a little bit different. So I can see, in a way, why Talking Heads wouldn't feature in a book, in a history of punk, because they were always a little bit separate from it. Mm. Mm. And punk was always a little bit weird in the States anyway, because there was no point at which punk began in the way that in the UK you might say like The Damned, first Single or Anarchy in the UK or when Malcolm McLaren opened his shop on King's Road that you know they could be argued to be the seminal moment for Mm. punk certainly in the UK or is in the States.
1: It just built sort of slowly out of of necessity. Yeah and it was
2: a kind of a continuum from Velvet Underground through to MC5, Stooges, Mm. Television, New York Dolls, Ramones and so there was no real starting point. In fact Lou Reed I think, used to come along to CBGBs around that time, 75, 76, when the likes of the Ramones and Talking Heads were starting and Lou actually gave Talking Heads advice and he gave David Byrne the advice that he should wear long-sleeved shirts. I don't know if you've heard this because he he said, your arms are too hairy. Nice. That's good advice, Lou. So he was, I don't know where that fits into the kind of punk ethos. Yeah, but I, I don't this, mind
1: it. This was apparently part of it. So Well the, the considering their image, David Byrne had started to dress very straight when he was in Rhode Island. Like he was mm, against yeah. the long hair kind of hippie kind of style thing. So he did have shorter hair and dressed mm. neatly, and button-down shirts, nice trousers. Mm. So that was his rebellion against all of that anyway. So yeah. I guess the music was always going to rebel against that. And so yeah. the look married that really well as well i mean they just wanted to be different to the bands that were out there and they they did that from the start
2: well chris france talked about their the clothes they wore as being basically what their mum sent them at christmas Right, and you can relate to that. (laughs) Um, Sadly, only the two of you can see what I'm wearing now with the um, the reindeer on the The gender
1: roles are are really overemphasized anyway these days. (laughs) I think it's fine.
2: (laughs) I'm wearing this hat because I like it. Okay, (laughs) Um, but uh, yeah. And Chris France said that we didn't have any money, and if we did, we wouldn't want to waste it on on clothes. Mm. So which or I'm stage sure you, gear you can relate to much. Yeah, well that's that's right. As <laughs> someone with no interest in fashion
1: whatsoever. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, well 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 David Byrne said, I I like the idea of just walking on stage in your street clothes. So yeah, whatever yeah. it is that they were wearing, that was it. Mm. There was no costume, there was no yeah. you know artifice. It was this It would really us. be
0: funny if they uh, arrived to the gig in street clothes and then changed into other
1: street clothes. Yeah, a second <laughs> set of street clothes. Yeah. That <laughs> I mean, would have been very arty. Yeah, it would be. <laughs>
2: Well, it was an artistic statement they were making in trying to kind of break down barriers between the band and the audience and that sort of stuff, which was in some ways quite a punk thing anyway.
1: Absolutely it was, yeah. Well, it was a very American version of it anyway, shall we say. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the record that I bought in probably 78 called Whitman's Punk Sampler, which was a takeoff of the Whitman's Chocolate Box samplers yes. that you could buy. Are you buy. sure this
0: wasn't just a chocolate box? It time. wasn't. It,
1: it, it, no, no, it wasn't. And it, it contained live tracks from all the various American punk bands at the time. And I think most of them were recorded at CBGBs. Oh, okay. I haven't Googled this, but I'm pretty confident. Psycho Killer was on there. I think Sheena Petty is a punk and Patty. rocker. Yeah, was on there. Um, all of those bands and... Um, mm. And Psycho Killer, I remember it stood out at the time as as quite different from the other things on there. But it was yeah. immediately catchy and memorable. Yeah, yeah. And I was talking about doing this band with my wife the other day who's significantly younger than I am. Let's just say she's finished school. <laughs> and um, when I, I spoke to her about Talking Heads, she said, Psycho Killer, I know that song. And I was like... How can you possibly know a song that was released in 1977 that you you would have been however old when it came out? Mm -hmm. And she was just like, I I know that song. I know that song really well. And I was thinking, wow. That's a song but, that but, they played in their first set in 1975. Yeah, it was that's the still, first song David Byrne wrote. Yeah, it's still resonating mm. all these years mm, Yeah,
0: on, on Triple M, on rock stations, that is the song that they play all the time. Isn't it's it? amazing yeah. that yeah. when you think about that, it's like an odd, quirky song that's about a subject matter that's not often written about. It's got, he, French he, got French lyrics. it has got French lyrics, yes. <laughs> yeah. And here we are, however many decades later, and it's still a favourite on mm. rock radio.
1: Well, as I said, you, you sort of take a poll amongst people out there that aren't particularly particularly you know, interested in this sort of stuff, and they will know that song. We should get to the first album, yes. uh, which was released in September 77, called Talking Heads 77. Mm. It was nice of
0: them to do that. It was, it was good. Just put the year there.
2: And, um, did any of us hear that album when it, when it came out? Because I didn't. I heard it retrospectively.
1: Graham, you probably did. Uh, yes, I did. Um, Being several years older than us. <laughs>
0: Um, I was 15 in 77 I I didn't have it But uh, a friend of mine I think had it on cassette And uh, I heard a couple of songs from it But um, I know for a fact that At the time, a lot of bands in Brisbane were referencing that album. And uh, I I remember the story of uh, the drummer from my band in, I think it was about 1982. When he left my band, he went to uh, another band called the Minesweepers in Brisbane. And they handed him a copy of Talking Heads 77 and said, we want you to play like this.
3: I see the clouds that move across...
0: And at the time, this was 1982, so it was a good five, good years, five years later. five years later, yeah. And I thought that was kind of odd, but when I look back now, there were a lot of Brisbane bands who yeah. sounded like the Talking Heads at that time.
1: Well, we've discussed it. So the go-betweens mm. had to have been influenced by yeah, Talking Heads. absolutely. That jangly, kind of clean sound and kind of odd lyrics. Yeah. Well, it
2: would be easier to replicate the Talking Head 77 sound than the, we'll get to this, but the Remain in Light sound mm. with 25 overdubs of yeah.
1: percussion. <laughs> yeah, well, as a starting That's point, it's not a bad one. I mean, you know, you've got some some good catchy songs in there. We've got Psycho Killer, of course. Pulled Up is, is a great pop song. Mm. Um, don't Worry About the Government. It's mm. great. I mean, and even uh, with a new feeling, it's quite funky. I think the first mm. album had a bit of swing to it and a little bit of groove to it that other stuff wasn't yeah. doing at the time. Yeah. Um, there was something I read about comparing them to Wire and, and the journalists were saying that Wire were really distinctly white in their sound whereas Talking Heads always had a little bit of swing mm, e- yeah. even though they were starting out and hadn't quite mastered it to the levels that they would later. Um, mm. They always had a little bit of groove in their stuff and yeah, they certainly yeah. did in the first album, I thought.
2: Yeah. Well, um, uh-oh, Love Comes to Town, Francis, is a bit funky.
1: Yeah, mm. a little bit of funk going on in there. Now, mm. now this is a little-known fact. Oh, yes. Produced by Tony Bongiovi. Bonji not Jovi, but that name rings a bell because he's. I can, I
0: can see you heading. You know somewhere where with I'm going to go with this. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, that's um, John Bon Jovi's cousin. Yeah,
1: <laughs> didn't see that coming, did you? No, no. Especially because of the pronunciation, is, is not the same. Well, he he dropped the I. Bon Jovi, obviously, from his uh, name. John did. Yes, went to, well, for his stage name. But it mm. is it does have the extra And in there. And he so later you're trying went, to throw us off the scent with the am, bon Jovi. trying to trick you there. Yeah. But later on he went to uh, open up the Power Station, which was a very big New York studio.
0: Oh, is that because John Bon Jovi worked at the Power Station? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so it was was nepotism. That's how he got Uh, the job. That's how he got the gig early on. But yeah, Mm. funny, funny album for a guy like that to produce. Like, Mm. um, obviously, a bit of a rock dude, Jersey rock guy, and he's in there producing the first. Do you know what else?
2: Bon Jovi. Produced?
1: He's produced records by Gaynor, Eric Smith, The Ramones. Okay. I don't know why we're labouring this point anyway. Mm. He's done everything from R&B to hard rock. This is interesting. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah. He's, he's still around.
0: The reason why I think that's interesting is because, like, he would have produced some quite, um, well, it sounds like some mainstream mm. acts. What would he have thought when he first heard The Talking Heads?
1: Well, I think the connection may have been that they, The Ramones and Talking Heads were on Sire Records and, and yeah. he had done some stuff with The Ramones. Maybe that was the only reason, like, mm. you do these guys. Guys as but well. even
0: like when he first heard, I wonder if he thought, "What, what the hell am I going to do with these guys?" Well, I think you yeah. you
1: would know this. A lot of producers probably feel that way about the music they're kind of having to work on. They don't particularly like it. Yeah. <laughs> but he gave it a clean sound. I mean, it sounds yeah. pretty much like their live show. Yeah, there's yeah. not a great yeah. deal of yeah. anything yeah. except keyboards because um, Jerry Harrison wasn't in the original lineup, yeah. and by that stage they were a four-piece, and he did play on the, the, that album. But there's not a lot of keyboards. So you're saying he pressed record and walked out of the studio? <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, yeah, pretty much. Send his his nephew out to get the donuts. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and speaking of production, yes. Um, by this stage, Brian Eno had already been to a Ramones Talking Heads gig in London. Uh, his friend John Cale had taken him along. This is
1: the Brian Eno. This is the Brian Eno. The famed yeah. Roxy not, Music not keyboardist. A, not a random.
2: Brian Eno, but Just the Brian.
1: David Bowie collaborator. Yes. And so on.
2: The one, yes. Oh,
1: I think I'm familiar with him.
2: And David Byrne and possibly the rest of the band went back to Brian's place and they listened to a bit of um, Nigerian Afrobeat pioneer, Fela Kuti. As you do. Uh, yeah. In action. Mm-hmm. Aphrodisiac I think might have been That's the big album. of the reference a, point. Yep. Of around about that time. Mm-hmm. And Eno was sufficiently impressed by Talking Heads that within a matter of weeks he was writing and recording a song on his album Before and After Sights, called King's Lead Hat, mm-hmm. which is an anagram of... Talking, Talking Heads. Talking Heads. I, I, no. I almost saw that coming, but <laughs> my brain had to quickly rearrange the letters. Um, and he almost seems to be channelling David Byrne's vocal style, and this is before Eno had even worked with Talking Heads, mm. which he subsequently did on Talking Heads' second album,
1: from 1978 from July. 1978 July. Called?
2: Called More Songs About...
0: Buildings and, and food.
1: food. I think they were both sufficiently impressed with each other, Bern yes. and Eno.
2: They got along well.
1: They did get along well, and it's something that um, increasingly drove a wedge between them and the other members of the band over the subsequent three albums that they did. Mm. Because of the bromance? Because of the bromance. And Tina Weymouth is quite vocal in her um, kind of having a bit of a laugh about it a little bit, but there's a little undercurrent of bitterness there. And one of her quotes is that, that, that they were constantly trying to impress each other like two 14-year-old boys <laughs> and at one point they even started dressing alike.
2: So that's...
1: Sharing street
0: street clothes.
2: That kind of creeps me out a little
1: bit. (laughs) Well, Eno was quite a bit older, so I think he saw David Byrne as a bit of a protege. Yeah, yeah. And David Byrne, of course, would have looked up to Eno as this, you know, arty, famous guy. Obviously, Mm. he was. Mm.
2: So Eno helped to invent Normcore as
1: well as... Back then.
2: As well as everything else.
1: There you go. What, What isn't he responsible for? (laughs) <laughs> the, right. I, the other thing I wanted to say about Eno and Byrne was that Eno found Byrne fascinating because of his way with words and, and, and Eno always said he had nothing to say. There was yeah. an interview in 1977, he's talking to Sounds, I think, and he said, I do ambient music because I've never had anything to say. But I, I like <laughs> lyrics and I love hearing other people's but I just don't have that capacity myself. So yeah, he, he yeah. really enjoyed David Byrne's way with lyrics which even then were interesting and <laughs> quick, mm. so yeah. say.
2: Yeah. Well, David Byrne was always trying to be emotional without being sentimental. Mm. He always tried to have a point to his lyrics. He didn't want to just yell at people. He he wanted to be passionate without yelling at people. Mm. And it was always a distinction he was making, which was quite an intellectual distinction to make and quite an anti-punk distinction to make as well. Mm. But, uh, yeah, that was where I, I suppose the art school upbringing came in. As distinct from the ground zero starting again, scorched earth policy kind of thing.
1: You know, no other band at that time would have done a cover of the Al Green song, Take Me to the River.
0: That was the reason why I bought. More songs about buildings and food was the first Talking Heads album that I bought, and it was because of "Take Me to the
1: River." So that was a top thirty hit in the US, but was it on the radar here? I remember yeah, kind no, of hearing it, but only on. I do remember know, it being
0: on the radio. I don't think it like it wasn't a hit, no. like a big hit. It
1: wasn't flogged to death, mm. but um, but it was I on Countdown. Was yeah. it? Yeah. I think. Okay, the, the video, not the live show. Good question. I'm not sure. Or yeah. miming, I should say. Mm. But, but it's a great mm. version. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd never heard an Al Green song in my life No, no, that. but I was
0: just going to say, at that time in my life, I, I didn't know who Al Green was. I knew the Talking Heads were a new wave band, and uh, and I just really liked the song, just the mm. whole feel of the song. Was oh, great. it's a great
1: version, and, and yeah. it was a deserved hit, but you wouldn't think they would have had a hit with something like that in 1978 as a self-proclaimed new wave band, no, whatever no. they were. Everything was lumped in together in those days anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: And as you've described, the three-piece, these guys who had been together at Rhode Island School of Design and had the same kind of art school background, and you can kind of see them being a kind of a gang, you know, know, a slightly intellectual gang, but but a gang nonetheless and maybe a core group that's kind of hard to, to get close to. And then Jerry Harrison comes on board and he's a little bit older. He's he's the oldest member of the band. He'd played in Modern Lovers who'd, who'd been around for a while, so he was a bit of a veteran of, of the scene.
1: Probably more of a muser than them yeah, in that respect, yeah. yeah.
2: So you kind of wonder whether he's going to fit in or the extent to which he's going to fit in. Mm. But I did discover that he went to Harvard, which I hadn't known prior to you know us deciding to... Uh, to do this podcast. And most interestingly, from my point of view, as part of his undergraduate thesis at Harvard, he wrote a 60-page essay on can openers. And if you can yeah, do that... Are these
0: people who opened for can? The, so. Yeah. It's <laughs> German support acts.
2: <laughs> the Kraut Rock. It's yeah. A, it's a, yeah, there was yeah, Kraftwerk, Neu. There were only two of them. But, um, yeah, so he wrote this 60-page essay on can openers. And, frankly, if he had gone to the audition... And just, mentioned and just that. said, just like to say, I wrote a 60 page paper on can openers. David Byrne, I mean, what are the odds on David Byrne saying you're in? You're in. No, you don't need to play anything. I'm sure you'll be just... fine.
1: <laughs> just do that. But yeah, well, he was
0: quite talented, like a multi instrumentalist. Mm. He, he was a great yeah. keyboard player and a great guitarist.
1: Well, it's that's interesting nice. that they felt they needed that too. As you said, they had their little gang there. Two of them mm. are a couple.
0: Mm. So maybe
1: yeah. David needed an offsider, someone yeah. to be on his side. well, mm. yeah, that's,
2: that's something that isn't much remarked upon in terms of the talking head story but you would imagine that not only were chris france and Tina Weymouth partners but they were the rhythm section so you know Mm. they would have been dictating you would think to a large extent that side Mm. of well
1: they would have been making sweet sweet music every (laughs) night that's right (laughs) (laughs) actually if they were married they wouldn't have been (laughs) my apologies (laughs) there's a there's a nice little story that tina tells about uh, them fighting over the stereo where she'd always be turning up the, the bass to get the the bottom end and And Chris would be trying to wrestle it back from it to turn up the trebles or you'd hear the hi-hat patterns (laughs) of what was going on. So they were always kind of battling that. But um, great rhythm section. And and, and very funky, like songs like Found a Job. It's starting to really get that white funk. Mm. I mean, they kind mm. of in many ways painted that sound because, as I said, not many people were touching on that at that point. People were no. trying, but they were doing a pr- pretty decent job of it Yeah, for 1978.
2: They didn't sound like black wannabes. They, no. They were interpreting it their own way, and it was funky, but it was also kind of... Angular and weird. A little bit
1: held back, a little bit stiff, Mm. but that's their version of it. They wanted to get down, but they're a little bit unsure. (laughs) (laughs) They wanted to get down. (laughs) That's it.
0: Well, I saw them uh, in
1: 79. So Was that... After the release of it, more it w- songs? As in it was, but was it pre-the next album? Or- yes, it was pre-Fear of Music. Which was um, in 79, okay. Yeah. Do you know what month you saw them in 79?
0: <laughs> no, but I would say when did Fear of Music come out? Well all? that was came out year? in August 79.
2: So uh, you were a fan of the two previous
0: albums? Yeah, so basically I was familiar with some of the songs on Talking Head 77. I bought more songs about buildings and food, which I loved. And I also was sharing that album with uh, some other friends of mine. And uh, it was a particular friend of mine, Frank, who now lives in Tokyo. He and I went to see Talking Heads at this time. And um, I really wanted him to be impressed by this because it was... So he
2: he wasn't a fan as such at the time? I don't
0: know whether he knew much of them at the time, but I was trying to impress him with not just the Talking Heads, but the, the New Wave movement in general. And we went along and I took him along to see uh, Talking Heads and I said, you're you're really going to love this. And the song they opened up with was The Big Country. Um, which, which album is that on? This is on well, more the songs best track. Track. It's the last track But it is the most sort of country and western very conservative <laughs> song that, <laughs> that they also did But it's
1: a bit of a song song too mm. yeah, yeah quite traditional right. yeah, yeah. It was It was but June 79, Graham. June, June 11th Yeah It just come to me Wow
2: Perfect <laughs> So you were trying to convince Frank that pedal steel was was, yeah, was the future. That's
0: right, yeah. <laughs> this song started and I was like, No, 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 this
1: this isn't it at all. It's gonna get better. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's it's
0: really quirky, it's unusual. This this yeah. is a bit more and um, this was a full house, uh,
1: I guess, it's a big venue, Festival Hall in Yes, it was days, Festival yeah. Hall, so... Uh, Eight or nine thousand people, I, I was
0: surprised at how many people were there. Wow. Because um, It was the ha- premier venue in those yeah. days.
1: Really? It was, it was the... It was the venue. It
0: was the venue in It was Brisbane. the
1: entertainment centre of its day.
0: Mm. There was a lot of people there. They, they really loved it. I always remember at the very beginning, some people got up to dance and uh, David Boone... Uh, walked up to the microphone and he said, "Uh, listen, you've put me in a bit of a dilemma here. Some of you have gotten up to dance, but you're blocking the view of some of the people sitting down. And the people sitting down all cheered. And then he went up to the microphone and said, however, if you want to dance, you you can do that as well. So, (laughs) and then he just kind of left it (laughs) at that. So... uh, they the, just left them to fight
1: amongst themselves. <laughs> People didn't know what to do.
0: No, it, it, was, it was a bit. They like were looking that. for direction from their leader. <laughs> their leader, and he, and he, 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 was in, he was offering none. <laughs> he wasn't going to help them out
1: at all. <laughs> But so they would have played quite a few tracks off the third album, I suppose, as well.
0: Yeah, oh. I, I don't know what the set list was. They played a lot of more songs. They played Psycho Killer and a few of Talking Head 77. They may have been featuring Fear of Music stuff, but... Um, well,
1: since it came out a couple of months after mm. this, no doubt they had.
0: Yeah. And they were good? Mm, they were fantastic.
2: So in terms of more songs about buildings and food, how post-punk is it? You know, like It's quite an optimistic sounding album. It's uh, In a way, it wasn't an album that was influenced by post-punk as much as it was an album that influenced post-punk.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think as we talked about the first album, I reckon of a lot of bands, not just in Brisbane, but worldwide that saw this as a way forward out mm. of, you know, maybe the little bit of a narrow alley that, that, that punk had gone mm. up at that. There would have been a lot of punks at this show, though, having said that, I'm mm. sure, because yeah, anything that was New Wave, you went to see. I don't mm. know why I didn't go to this show. For some reason, I didn't, but... It was a well, big year. I'd yeah. probably been to Boomtown Reds and Gary Newman already. Whatever was going on. Yeah, that, 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 that,
0: that was this is the year before. But, but if I was seventeen, you were what 14, 15 or something. You know, I can tell you why. <laughs> <I don't, laughs> were you going living out in of that Brisbane?
1: Time. I had I hadn't moved to Brisbane at <laughs> you that were stage. Living, yeah, only living just, in at only just a, a month hmm. or two prior to that. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's yes. the sort of thing that, as I said, you would go to anything that yes. was sort of vaguely mm. connected with this music. I mean, I, I was aware of them. I had the Whitman's Punk Sampler. Mm. That's right. You uh, and, and devoured was, that. That's right. I loved it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so where are we going from here to
1: Fear of Music, I Well, Fear it? of Music came out in August, so just after you saw them mm. in 79.
0: Well, I'd
2: just like to mention, it, if I can, the fact that Brian Eno was working on his um, Bowie trilogy at the time, the, uh, what was it, Heroes, Low and Lodger. Mm-hmm. And in between more songs about buildings and food and fear of music, um, he did record Lodger with Bowie and one song on Lodger, African Night Flight. If you listen to it and then think, could you imagine this being a possible influence on the fear of music the more african mm. aspects of fear of music it does make me wonder whether brian might have brought it into the studio or yeah it's just interesting that kind of cross-pollination because um eno produced devo's first album the previous year as well are we not meant
1: he's a busy man yeah yeah
2: absolutely <laughs> so and he was doing the odd ambient album as well yeah. so Yeah, so it's interesting, the the evolution of Talking Heads Music from more songs about buildings and food to fear of music and just what might have influenced the more obvious kind of change in sound from one album to the next.
1: I think there's a big leap. I think the first two albums are more similar to each other than Fear of Music. Mm. I mean, everybody talks about the first track, zimbra and uh, the last track, Drugs, being that they sort of were leading towards the next album, which was obviously Remain in Light, because it's got that African sort of rhythm, funk, very mm. polyrhythmic, lots of layers of things going on and, and certainly is pointing to the direction of where they're going to go. Mm. But I don't know, there's something, I was probably almost my favourite album this right. one, almost. It's very polished, it's got a lot of great ideas, great, great lyrics and a bona fide classic in heaven, which is just a, mm. a great traditional song. Yep.
0: and Life During Wartime.
1: Yeah, that's Which a great thing. And the lyrics are fantastic on this as well. I mean, his yeah. lyrics are just getting better and better.
2: Well, he, his lyrics and his overall attitude was kind of quirky, enigmatic and so on, occasionally hinting at neurosis, paranoia or whatever. Um, but his lyrics weren't generally overtly funny. Mm. on the first two albums, although I think there was something about the uh, girls getting into abstract analysis or something on the uh, girls want to be with the girls. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, the lyrics, some of the lyrics on Fear of Music are just riotously funny Mm. as well as, but not sort of trying to be funny, not trying to be comedy songs because there's always a point to the humour, but the lyrics of cities, the lyrics of animals Mm. and even heaven is pretty funny if you kind of take it literally. Mm. Is kind of exploring a whole different vein, a whole different territory there. Well, he'd always mm.
1: sung about real things rather than just mm. love and relationships. When I want to say real things, um, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the, the large percentage of what life is about, which is, you know, finding an apartment to live in, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. Bills, you know, the government, various, <laughs> various things, air. <laughs> well, yeah, well, he, t- he did say that he, d-
2: he tries to write about small things, paper, animals, houses, love mm. is kind of big. Yeah. If you look at a song like Air and Paper on Fear of Music, you can easily draw parallels or like you can see Air and Paper as metaphors for love mm. and that's where the songs draw their power. Mm. He never wants to be too overt about no. his relationships but I mean the song Paper I think talks about a short-lived relationship as being in some ways like like this piece of paper. So yeah, you no, know, there is kind of art but there's also emotion and that's always been... He's
1: away anyway.
0: Well, I think they really defined themselves on those first three albums and I
1: guess just getting more and more used to being in the studio, they got better and better. Well, having Eno in there yeah. would, would help. I yeah, mean, he yeah. was pretty much a veteran producer by that stage. Mm. It would have given them a lot of polish that they wouldn't have had otherwise.
0: Oh, just one uh, interesting thing I want to mention about Fear of Music is that there is a, a particular Brisbane connection. Really? I think this was while they were touring here. There was a song called... It's the last song on Fear of Music. Which is... Drugs, drugs, yeah. yeah, and there is a recording of birds uh, at the beginning, and they recorded these birds at Brisbane's Lone Pine Sanctuary. Right, so and that's I, in Brisbane. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it was. Um,
2: you guys are really getting off on this Brisbane thing. You both yeah. lived in Brisbane. I never did. You know, I've got, I've got to say, I'm less. I've got less emotional investment.
0: Well, it's a big thing for me because I went to Lone Pine uh, Sanctuary when I was a kid, and I like h- held a koala. Wow. And I imagine each member of the Talking Heads
1: would have held a yeah. corral It was food. a thing. I remember the story running around town and people would talk so about it. it was a big it. story. It was a story amongst, you know, the, the people like yeah, us yeah, that yeah. knew yeah. this band. Like, oh, did you know they went to Lone Pine? Yeah, because Brisbane was a little town in, in those days and it was a big How did thing. How
2: people know where?
0: Because it was just reported. Maybe Triple
1: Triple Z mentioned okay. it or may have even been in the paper. It was one of those things. I think like, it might
0: have been, the, what's the magazine where you had all the gigs in it? Time Out. Time Out. I think it was in Time Out.
1: Yeah, I remember seeing a photo and it was spoken about and we were all sort a little bit proud of the fact that, that this Talking Heads had come to Brisbane and had actually gone to one of the tourist attractions mm. of Brisbane and, and, then and they actually recorded. recorded some birds. And they
0: recorded some birds. And if you listen, the birds have a certain Aussie twang to them, <laughs> kind
1: of- wow. <laughs> Certain nasal twang. <laughs> and if you take drugs to the song Drugs, it'll be even more apparent. <laughs>
2: wow, well, that's really something. So there you go. But uh, certainly the first song and the last song is and Drugs do allude to the forthcoming more complex sound and in fact E Zimbra I think had four percussionists four extra percussionists on it and Life During Wartime had a couple as well one song in particular I think E Zimbra, could easily have been on *Remaining Light and mm-hmm. so you do think of Fear of Music as being quite an integrated record but I think E Zimbra kind of needed to be the first song because it is so different mm-hmm. to the rest of the album it's also a song that doesn't feature the lyrics of David Byrne the lyrics have been taken from a Dada poem written by a fellow called hugo ball so yeah it's a really unusual song in that respect and they brought in robert fripp i think to mm-hmm. do a guitar solo which again was a bit of a feature of Romanian light which we'll get to mm-hmm. so it's interesting how that panned out
1: well that track is really layered Mm. And I think David Byrne in particular was really interested in the way the funk groups like Parliament were into layering sound upon sound upon Mm. sound and not just having this, you know, reduced sound of of nothing going on. He really found that more revolutionary than what what the punk bands were doing at the time, to add and keep building on a sound and that became apparent certainly on Remain in Light. As you say, this, this track pointed towards that, but that was something he was really interested in doing and they reached out to a lot of these funk musicians subsequently and Bernie Worrell was the keyboard player. in Parliament and he uh, featured on uh, the following album and the tours as well as others.
2: But uh, if we're about to move on to Remain in Light, it might be worth mentioning a schism that had already begun Around that that point, yeah, things uh, started to kind of... Because of Eno's influence on Burn Mm -hmm. and the rest of the band feeling a bit less important. And if you look at the song credits... For fear of music. The song credits on side two it says all selections selections mm. written by David Byrne. And on side one it says like all songs by David Byrne apart from E which I think might be credited to Byrne and the band and Eno. Right. But there was a big kerfuffle and if you look now. At the credits on that album, there are various songs which are attributed to Jerry Harrison or to to other band members, and the same thing happened on Remaining yeah, Light, yeah, where, worse, actually, where song yeah. credits were subsequently changed. Mm. So you do kind of wonder what David Byrne was playing at. How does that become a thing? You know, well,
3: do with
1: you, the classic the frontman thing about? of like, I don't need a band. You know, I can mm. I can do my own things, and I, I'm the star of the show. I think Tina's always talking about how he became a bit of a dick when he became a star, mm. and they still kind of estranged now yeah yeah you know he, she said something like you know we all love him it's a shame he doesn't love us
0: what's oh, bit sad hmm
2: and I would just like to raise one more issue which is um, the lyrics of heaven someone did tell me rather conspiratorially sometime in the 1980s that the lyric that everyone thinks of which is heaven is a place where nothing ever happens that the lyric is actually nothing never happens never. Be that, blew yeah. that blew my mind. That blew my mind, and if you have a listen to it, it is it is actually a bit hard to tell mm. because well that would
1: make sense because one of the lines is nothing could be so exciting It yeah. could be this much fun. Mm. Yep, Yeah. <laughs> it's obviously like a part of their lives. They're going out a lot and probably going to these you know swanky clubs and bars and just everybody's just there because you've got to be there. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty much what the song's saying.
2: Mm. But if it is a song about um, heaven being a place where, let's say, nothing ever happens, is he saying heaven is actually the opposite of that or is he saying, he- you know, because like, mm. that's how satire works, so I'm told. <laughs> um, so the idea of a kiss which is the same over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, which is, you know, what he alludes to, is that actually heaven or is that kind of hell in a way? So Or a song that, that you hear over and over again. So Big questions, Patty. So what I'd like to posit... Is the, a theory that he's taking a Zen attitude, and he's saying that we want to hold on to these things. We want permanence. You know, we want the same thing over and over and over, or at least we think we do. But in fact, nothing could be worse than that. And perhaps that's what the song is about. But anyway, that's just. Well, I think we'll, David. Yeah, we'll find
1: out when we interview David, if think think. we get a chance to do that. <laughs> and he'll be in
2: later on.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: Yes. Um, So I guess, yeah, the the split, not a split, but some tensions within Mm. the band are are surfacing around about this time. Remain in Light comes out the following year, a bit over a year later, October 1980. Um, But in that time, the members had been sort of working on their own individual projects sort of concurrently. Bern and Eno were working on My Life in the Bush of Ghosts before... Remaining light started.
2: It's hard to tell what how much crossover there was. Whether mm. they, they were maybe doing a little bit of work on.
1: Well, the the ideas were between. certainly floating around mm. because the the albums are not dissimilar, as everybody yeah. knows. Yeah, uh, yeah. so I think
2: I think maybe they wrote and recorded quite a bit of My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, but hadn't quite finished it. Mm. And then what they went over to the Bahamas, Nassau, to, to studio up, there. Yes, and uh, where ACDC had just finished recording Back in Black.
1: I think the police recorded there at some point mm. too. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think uh, they put that on hold to start working on uh, Remain in Light. But the Tom Tom Club, the rhythm section of, of Tina and Chris, had also been doing their own things. Yep. yep. Uh, with their first album, uh, Wordy Rapping Hood and Genius of Love, still staples to this day yep. uh, and a big hit in the hip hop and uh, R&B community. Words of nuance, words of skill and words of romance are uphill. Words are stupid, words are fun, words can put you on the run. The yeah, interesting yeah. part about that is that Chris France actually played drums on Curtis Blow's The Breaks. <laughs>
0: Clap your hands everybody, if you got what it takes. Cause I'm Curtis Blow and I want you to know that these are The Breaks. Which is
1: a well-known hip-hop record, a great record. And uh, when he came to the Remaining Light sessions, he recommended to uh, David Byrne that he should try and use some of the sort of rapping inflections that, that Curtis Blow had used, All right. um, which he does use in some of the tracks, a little bit kind of awkward sounding, but you can hear that kind of yeah, yeah. proto-rapping sort of style. Yeah. And yeah. this is 1980, so the, mm. there's not a lot of this kind of crossover happening at this stage. Um, and they were they wanted to use breakdancers in the video for um, Burning Down the House right, that, yeah. that Tony Basil worked on. Yes. Choreographed. Yes, indeed. So, yeah, I mean, where do you, where do you start uh, talking about Remain in Light?
2: Well, I guess the lyrics, for instance... Um David had gone from a fairly clinical sort of ideas-based thing. So it's like I'll write a song about paper, I'll write a song about air. He'd like that seemed to be how the, how the ideas had germinated. Mm. Whereas I think he had writer's block going right. into Remain in Light, and so he got much more into a stream of consciousness attitude, which you know served the lyrics pretty well because it's lyrically the album is just extraordinary. But
1: well, the album, all, as we were talking about this earlier, is very linear. There's no real chord changes in it either. It's just like yeah, relentless. Yeah grooves are, like, is
2: there a single chord change on the
1: album well you could argue that there isn't mm. but the first three songs are almost like one song yeah. um, they are just like one side of the record back in the days mm. when you had sides of records mm. layered everybody playing a tiny bit that's then stitched together to create this tapestry yeah. you know, there's one track where everybody plays some bass on it. So there's like four or five different bass parts. Everybody's yeah. playing keyboards.
0: Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that um, until recently. I always loved Tina's bass playing and mm-hmm. the bass riffs that she came up with. But um, I wasn't aware that actually a lot of people contributed bass.
1: To everybody bass. swapped instruments. Mm. The theory behind that was that, that they felt David Burnett had too much responsibility to come up with the creative ideas. Mm. for the three albums before, which they thought was kind of unfair on him and so that everybody should contribute a little bit more equally. So everybody kind of mucked in. But it was very piecemeal. So you'd come in and play, you know, a four or five note riff, go away. Somebody else would come in and do a little keyboard part go away and and sort of not be involved again for Mm, a long time. So this is where David, Byrne and Brian Eno were sort of working together on it to the exclusion of the others.
2: Yeah, well, they would have been slaving over a hot console for, you know, days at a time, piecing pieces of... Tape together. Yeah, well, it's
1: pre-samplers, and mm, it's it's it mm, predates yeah. all of that sort of technology. So it would have been very difficult to do. And to Eno's credit, you would have had to have this big picture in your mind yeah. of how the hell this is going to turn into what we call a song, because yeah, <laughs> mm, yeah. you know you're not going to end up with a song. But when you hear it, it's it's stunning. Well, it's yeah. stunning.
2: Yeah. All, all of the songs sound like they could have been improvised. Mm. They sound like. Like just fantastic jams, mm. but to learn that the songs have been kind of pieced together, like loops and samples, and it was very clinically put together in a way for, for an album that just has got so much groove and is such a mm. soulful album.
1: Mm. Oh, it's it's relentlessly funky. Was quite mind-blowing when it first came out. I don't know whether we first heard, uh, as in the consumers industry, probably heard once in a lifetime first. I'd say mm. the single, which was kind of representative of it, but but in a way not. I think it was close, but it was a surprising hit. I think it was here and in England, yeah. but not in America. Like, it um, didn't yeah. didn't work in America. Was their worst-selling album. Yeah, well, Black radio but wouldn't but touch once
0: it. again, everyone seems to like know radio. it in America. Like well, they do uh, now, yeah. 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 It, uh, but no one knew what to make
1: of it. It was a little mm. bit too, it yeah. had a foot in both camps and no one really knew what it was. And you may
3: find yourself living
2: in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large
3: automobile. Well, that
2: single didn't even crack the top 100.
1: In America. In America, yeah. yeah.
2: So despite having like an absolutely fantastic and hilarious film clip. Mm.
1: Mm. And um, it's a very catchy song, weird time signature, sort of a weird 5-4 thing or something going on with it.
2: Yeah, Yeah. well, well, I think Eno did get some people on the song to start on the 3 instead of the 1 beat, which just creates this weird kind of jerky kind of feels it's so, very off kilter the whole track yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Well,
1: so apparently Robert Fripp played his whole guitar thing over the entire song in this like five four thing. <laughs> and then and they only used the bit at the end and like uh. Byrne was really annoyed with him. Like, why would anybody want to do that? Yeah, But, yep, but yep. he did it for the entire four minutes of the song or whatever and then they just used the end, bit, <laughs> that weird solo. <laughs> How very. End. It sounds no. amazing. Mm. Yeah, at the end, yep, yeah, yep. yeah,
0: Well, I would go out on a limb here, guys, and say that this is probably their best album and yeah. I would go even further and say that I would put this in is, my. This
1: limb is creaking, Graham.
0: I know. <laughs> 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 I would put this album in the top ten maybe albums of all time.
1: So not just yeah. the 80s.
0: Not just the 80s, not just Talking Heads, but Desert Island stuff, if this I was is, on a this desert is, yeah. island. Yep. yep.
2: And yeah, I, I needed reckon, to. I you're probably onto something there.
1: Yeah, look, I think you, would, you wouldn't be alone in that. I mean, if you if you read any lists. You wouldn't be Robinson Crusoe on that desert island. No, you'd be pretty much living with a bunch of people. But it's, it's not an unpopular idea that this is one of the great albums, and it was certainly critically acclaimed at the time, mm. certainly more so than My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which came out a few months after it, and a lot of people thought it had kind of, ripped it off. Yeah, yeah, instead kind of, of
2: actually pre- predating it. It annoyed
1: Eno you know, hugely <laughs> that the thunder had been stolen a little bit by, by mm. Remain in Light.
2: Yeah, I think they had trouble getting clearance for some of the vocal samples on My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which, which delayed it. Mm. Uh, yeah, so it seems like, like an album of throwaway B-sides or something. Yeah. Yeah, which is unfortunate from, from Brian's point of view.
1: <laughs> well, once again, they had a problem with the credits for that too. He was yeah. he really wanted it to be an album by, uh, I think, David Byrne and and Brian Eno, No Talking Heads. Yeah, but They had a yeah. little bit of a stink about that. It, it's certainly become one of the landmark albums of its time and certainly predated a lot of the sampling of people like Public Enemy and and, and a lot yeah, of hip-hop yeah, acts of yeah. throwing in all of these sort mm. of disparate things that that make a whole. Uh, the that, that challenge is what a song can be. Yeah. Because the first yeah. three tracks in particular, the first side, which is uh, Born Under Punches, Cross-Eyed and Painless and um, whatever the third one is, A Great Curve, is something that you had not heard. I certainly hadn't heard before, mm. anyway.
0: And that album's been influencing artists even today. Um, Friendly Fires have a song called In the Hospital, which is kind of an homage, if you like, to Cross Eyed and Painless. <laughs> Uh, and also bands like LCD Sound System.
1: Mm. I, I think that LCD's whole career is probably influenced by Remaining Light. <laughs> 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 well, yeah. T- yeah. Change Your Mind yeah. Um, yeah.
2: has a very kind of talking heads kind of groove, as in the LCD Sound System song. Mm. So, um,
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, in terms of its importance out there, I have to tell you a story about one of the tracks that I was in the supermarket recently in Coles, as, as it happens. where Col- uh, Whereabouts? Coles in Edgecliff. In Edgecliff. Which is a okay. suburb here in Sydney. Yes. And I was doing my shopping, popping things into the trolley, as you do, coming away, and I and I, and I I started to hear Cross-Eyed and Painless over the stereo. Was that unusual well, for You sort of Edgecliff. hear music in the, in the supermarket, and I was like, wow, you know, this is fantastic. They there, didn't play a lot of post-punk. Not a lot of post-punk. maybe in Edgecliff? <laughs> maybe, maybe not as much as you'd expect, but uh, <laughs> I could hear it playing there, and I was thinking, this is sensational. It's really seeped into the consciousness of of places here we are in 2018 and it wasn't right? a huge hit so it not. wasn't a huge hit but but nevertheless there it was and i, I was feeling really good about that so that was that Yeah, you know, the world's not such a horrible cold barren place you can hear cross-eyed <laughs> you, painless. you
2: weren't in a great mood no the shopping well, I, I
1: was don't, doing yeah. the shopping and um so i'm pushing my trolley away pay for my purchases as you do Leave, leave the shopping uh, area there, out into the centre, and I can still hear it. So it's actually the Edgecliff Centre's playing. This
2: is oh, so it's not just calls. Not just it's calls. Not just some random dude at this calls. Day is getting
1: Gone better feral. and better. <laughs> this is this is a great day, <laughs> and uh, so I'm I'm happily thinking about this as I'm leaving the centre. And as I leave the centre, I can still hear it. So it's actually Sydney. <laughs> <that's played. laughs> it's the <laughs> Sydney world. Sydney is
0: playing Cross is playing. <laughs> So
1: I'm starting to walk down to the car park, and I can still hear it. And I'm just this is fantastic. And at this point. I realised that it's coming out of my bag and it's actually my phone. (laughs) Somehow or another I've knocked the button on it and it's playing just quietly, Uh, enough that I can hear it, that that it's it's my own personal soundtrack. Wow. So So the world really was as cold
2: and barren (laughs) a place as you'd originally think. And
1: then I went and looked for the dog bridge (laughs) to see if I could jump off. Uh, Yeah, true story, true story. Wow.
2: It's extraordinary. Every now and again, Mark, you pull out a story which just <laughs> and the, leaves us... They're all well, true. spellbound. 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 I hope so. And amazed. And um,
0: cross-eyed and painless. And
1: painless. <laughs> um, I do want to also talk about The Overload, which is the last track oh, yeah. on the album, which you would all know is very much a Joy Division sounding song. Yes. Which sounds a lot like I Remember Nothing from the Joy Division debut album, Unknown yes, Pleasures. Yes. Great album, great title. Yes. Um... <laughs> And the story goes that Talking Heads had never heard Joy Division in their lives when they recorded this track. They based this track on the reviews they read of Joy Division. Which uh, is lies. I want right to go now. on record and say that's bullshit because <laughs> it is just a Joy Division track in every way. And I reckon that they did it and they just went, this is a great track, we want to put it on the album, but we're going to have to say we don't know anything about Joy Division.
3: of the
2: They did tour the UK in December '79. Talking Heads. They played in Manchester, around about. You wouldn't call it necessarily peak George Division, but not far off peak George Division time. Mm. So the idea that they would be walking the streets of Salford, Manchester, <laughs> Old Trafford, they'd be you know making a pilgrimage to the home of George Best.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> and
2: and uh, that they wouldn't at least hear Joy Division coming out of
1: a, a, record a store, club or a record or a, store. A clothes store or something, yeah. It's a little bit. <laughs> or someone's bag. Yeah, or, or someone's, someone's bag. Back. It's stretching, <laughs> It's stretching, you know, belief a little bit, I think, to say. It's a great story for them to say that. But, yeah, I, I don't believe that for a second. No. Because if you put those two tracks next to each other and go, yeah, this might yeah. be something you, you like to do. I will do that. There are... More than a few similarities, even in his delivery, his vocal delivery, and the and the lyrics are very bleak. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a terrible signal, a gentle collapsing. It's very Joy Division, <laughs> but what an album! Indeed, nineteen eighty-one,
0: they decided to do solo things.
1: Yeah, well, yes. they, 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 well, they'd already been working on that stuff, I suppose, yeah, and yeah. it came out in eighty-one. So they were all busy.
2: Yeah, yeah, and uh, David Byrne did his Catherine Wheel.
1: Opera, uh, opera. Yes, a dance oh, yes. project.
2: Wrote mm-hmm. a score for that. So they were all doing these these projects. And Frank
1: Zappa was involved in that too. Sombra. Is that right? I
2: think so. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they'd always had kind of. Other interests in that, for instance, I think every band member had designed or co-designed one of their album covers, right. so they had that kind of visual thing. So I think Jerry Harrison designed the cover of *Fear of Music*, for instance. Right. Um, but yeah, all four of them were involved in that side of things. So it's not that much of a surprise, really, that they they were happy to dip their toe into solo or collective musical waters during that time, and I'm not sure whether there was talk of Talking Heads breaking up.
1: I reckon there might have been, given there was a bit of a bad feeling about what had gone on with Remain in Light in particular
2: mm-hmm.
3: and the
1: Eno kind of thing. Uh, I think David Byrne even realised it was getting too much and decided that maybe it was time that, that, that he they didn't want to be his backing band Yeah, uh, and that, that, that I think Eno thought that David Byrne would be a little bit easier to work with than Brian Ferry and he could sort of <laughs> turn them into his own little uh, quartet.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you hear conflicting stories about whether Eno dumped Talking Heads or vice versa, but when you see or hear Eno's musical output from the remaining light era, 1980, in the first half of the 1980s, Eno was doing a lot of ambient stuff Mm. and nothing remotely, you know, tribal or that sort of, you know, Afro beat funk rock kind of thing. And, I mean, his next rock in inverted commas venture, as far as I can recall, was uh, Unforgettable Fire with our U2 in 1984. So right. um, it was probably a good time for them to...
1: Part ways. Well, three albums is it. That's what Eno does. Get your three albums. Yeah, just yeah. Look, if he'd been able to get David Byrne as lead singer, maybe Ambient would never have been invented. <laughs> Be cool. <laughs> I said maybe. Wafting mm. synthesizers. That's... Yes. Who's going to buy that? Is that
2: a bit like the Mississippi? But <laughs> someone's eventually going to, you know, discover it, even if it's not Desoto. Yes.
1: <laughs> uh, we should also say Jerry Harrison did a solo album in '81, too, "The Red and the Black," mm-hmm. which was very good. So and it was a great year.
0: And the Tom Tom Club music might well, have been quite influential. Well, and it, much it remains so
1: to yeah. this day. That, yeah, exactly. There's a great story of uh, Chris France walking around through New York one day and went past a basketball court and they were playing "Genius of Love." Like. The, The the black kids there in the ghetto, whatever, were playing their track and he was just like, you know, well, we've kind of made it given that we're trying to do that kind of music and uh, people don't even realise it's a bunch of white guys.
0: And it was quite commercial at the time and mm. uh, there was a, a radio station where we grew up, Triple Zen, which played alternative music, I guess you could say, mm. and they played the Tom Tom Club. But constantly. that was the beauty of
1: this period. There was a bit of a cross-pollination of things and Talking Heads were real leaders in that area of trying different things and not just going down an alley of this is what you can do and what you can't do. Mm. You know, I think that that's something that, that they should be applauded for, mm. yeah. for doing. I mean, of yeah. course, you know, they're always going to move on to other things, but I think the first four albums in particular up to 1980, every one of them was a a move on from the the previous one. And Remain in Light is the culmination of all that. I think there's no argument about that. But, um, yeah, they had a bit of a break, though, after Mm, after mm. Remain in Light. There was not a lot of togetherness.
2: But before we leave Remain in Light, I feel I should mention the crossover of Talking Heads music from that time into popular culture and the fact that on YouTube, I'm not sure where this fits into the timeline, but on YouTube you can find Kermit the Frog singing once in a lifetime. You may
0: find yourself living in a shotgun shack you may find yourself in another park.
1: <laughs> Graham, have you ever seen that? Graham. I've never seen it. <laughs> no. Graham, am I right in
2: saying that you have a bit of a Kermit impersonation up no, your sleeve? No, I'm not Come on, on, come on.
0: I can't even remember what it. I did. He's doing just it now. You're kind of getting there. I have spoken to these guys before, and they insist that I was doing a Kermit impression, but I think it's just my normal voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear you do. So you may ask yourself in <laughs> you know, a Kermit voice,
1: "But right, he's not going. He's not going to do he's it gonna, for uh, us. I'm I can
2: not going to rock it." <laughs> no. Graham, this
0: is disappointing. I could do Miss Piggy. I could have sworn could.
1: <laughs> Everyone can do Miss Piggy. Yeah, yeah. Just ask Kermit. She had
0: it. I'd really like to see that actually, because uh, I can't imagine a. Why Kermit would b- even be doing that song mm. and, um, you know, w- with a children's television workshop <laughs> teaching the kids a lesson about um, living in a shotgun shack. Jim yep. Henson
1: might have been a big Talking Heads fan.
0: Yeah.
2: And Kermit do- does do the kind of chop, 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 you know, down his arm yeah. uh, thing that uh, David Byrne does in the original film clip. So, so it is actually an homage to the, f- to the original film clip as well as to the song.
0: Okay. So, so kids, yeah. go and kids. seek that one out.
2: Check it out. Hmm. So a couple of years have passed.
0: Yes. It's June
2: 1983. The world has been waiting for the fifth Talking Heads album. <laughs> I like you counted down the list. <laughs> one, two, three, four. I'm, five, <laughs> five. I'm just counting down a list. Yeah. Hoping I've got the number right, and it is five. It is five, yeah. And uh, yeah, so here's speaking in tongues. So, what did we all feel when? Uh, I really
1: like speaking in tongues. It's their most um, poppiest album, Graham. So you'd love
0: it. No, no, I <laughs> would say that is it. Was the next one Little Creatures? Yes, yeah. I reckon that Little Creatures was like early Talking Heads made commercial. And I know that a lot of people who I went to school with, for instance, really like that. uh, Strummy pop music and a very much more commercial version of David Byrne's singing than previously. But I would put Speaking in Tongues in a transition between the two. They've still retained the funkiness of Remain in Light, but it's just a bit more disciplined. It's like he's concentrated on songwriting a bit more in this, yet kind of Funky jams turned into songs, perhaps.
1: They sound like a big band. There's a lot going <coughs> mm-hmm. on. Um, yeah, they. I. They did read something where David Byrne said that we needed to rediscover the charm and the and the you know the joy of the early albums that we'd kind of lost. Mm. So mm. they went back to sort of a little bit of a lighter sound, even though it's, it's a
2: very th- optimistic sounding album.
1: Yeah, but it, it's very of its time too. The, the drum sounds and the yeah, keyboard yeah. sounds are very eighties sounding. It's yeah. kind of dated a little.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Mm. I find it a bit kind of cold and clinical production-wise and Mm. that it does sound a little bit like a Howard Jones album or Yazoo or just like pretty much anything that was around about that time. So they had been dragged back to the pack, Mm. I think, a little bit certainly production-wise. And that's something that I really like about um, the Stop Making Sense film because that obviously doesn't have the 80s production values being being a live show. It was a
1: self-produced album too, the first one they Mm. really did themselves. Yeah, Mm. yeah.
2: So I think there are... I really like the album in terms of the, the songs. There are some fantastic keyboard sounds. Every member of the band contributed keyboards. It's very keyboardy, very synthy. But yeah, there's something about the production of the drums in particular, where drum sound like drum machines, was just a little bit kind of of its time. Mm. And Remaining Light hasn't dated one day, whereas mm. Speaking tongues sounds exactly like an album that came out in June 1983.
0: <laughs> I think it was a
1: definite decision to have a hit, to be, to go to the pop charts and go, well, this is our time.
0: Yeah, but you say that, but like Burning Down the House, that's not an obvious hit single. But it was their biggest hit. I know. It was top <laughs> it, ten. This, this yeah. is it. This is what amazes me about it is the same with, with uh, Once in a Lifetime. Really unlikely hit singles. And I love Burning Down the House, particularly that little the intro, the little guitar yeah, yeah, yeah. acoustic guitar and picking thing he does.
2: It's got a very weird keyboard solo towards the end, which is just kind of noodling on sort of mm. a noodling atmospheric melody and you're kinda of going, When's the next bit gonna happen? I mean I I happen to like that that kind of sound. But it's not kind of classic hit single territory. I don't think it's. Mm. I think
1: you're right. The sound of it's very poppy. The actual album itself is still interesting, and I loved it when it came out. I mean, Mm. you know, making flippy Mm. floppy swamp slippery. Swamp is a great song. They're all great songs, you know, and you can't go, oh, that's a dud album, but it was certainly a a real departure from the previous one. Mm.
0: The album also contains a song which has subsequently become a part of every second American movie soundtrack. Um, It's a song called uh, This Must Be The Place.
1: Naive Melody.
0: Yes, I've heard that on about seven different uh, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> movie soundtracks. I love it. It's a kind of a nice, cute little mm. little piece.
1: But, a lot uh, of people would know that album. Yeah, yeah. It really yeah. seeped into people's minds.
2: I think that that song, um, "This Must Be the Place," um, has assumed a place in American culture in a way that it hasn't, perhaps in Australian mm. culture. Mm. So it's it's probably American films. It's mm. it, it's appearing. And I think it might have been. Um, a bigger hit in the US than it was. It certainly wasn't a hit in Australia, for instance. Well, it probably went
1: into the MTV era a bit as Mm. well and, you know, they were there at that time and became just people heard of them all of a sudden and that album was ready to do it and that song in particular. Yep. Um, The Tour. The Stop Making Sense too. we should talk about yes. that a little bit. Well, that's, I
0: was going to say that these songs, as good as they were, I think these songs became great songs on Stop Making Sense, watching the bands interpret the songs mm. um, and all of the, uh, the theatrics of David Byrne dancing with a lamp and the big suit
1: and all of the the other things that... Um, the, kind of
2: co- the choreography with, with the backing. With sounds. the backing. Well, there were yeah. nine members of, yeah. of the
1: band on the tour. Like It starts with him coming out on mm. his own, putting the beatbox down on the stool... playing Psycho Killer drumbeat and and then it sort of adds to the whole thing if you've ever seen the film or the tour. Mm. Um, And it was was, and
0: and it's quite rightly referred to now as one of the best live rock movies ever he's yeah. um, amazing it really yeah. is amazing
1: yeah. I, I also wanted to say that he had uh, Dolan McDonald from Chic and Nona Hendrix people like that Bernie Worrell playing on that yeah Bernie Worrell Nona Hendrix
2: and, from, yeah. from, from La La Bell? Hendrix
1: was from La Belle Lady Marmalade mm. is the most notable hit but yeah it's like some real A grade players there, a second bass player as well, percussionists. Because to play those tracks from any of the you know, remain in light and fear of music stuff as well, you need a big band, you need a lot of people who are a very, very good tight unit. And mm. and they were, I was lucky enough to see them in 1984, as a, was I, as were to you, say. yes, Patrick. Yes, Graham, not so lucky, not yes. so lucky, but you, yeah. you were you lucky were, in you another were, way.
2: You, you were stuck in Brisbane twiddling your
0: thumbs, were you twiddling <laughs> some knobs. I was uh, I
1: was uh, called tell, upon. Tell us the
2: story. This actually is a great rock and roll story. It doesn't involve me but it does involve my two friends present in the studio today.
1: <laughs> the story goes. I was called upon, Mark. You were do called you, you upon. T- tell the story. You were called to the bar. Um, well, the band that I was in at the time secured a gig supporting the, the Eurythmics as they were known at the time and possibly still are known. Yes. As. <laughs> um, now, that your, t- your band being Theatre? Oh, this Dance was a, a Brisbane band some friends yes. and I had. And um, at the time, there was a big festival called Narara, which was playing in Australia, which featured uh, Talking Heads, Pretenders, Eurythmics, Simple Minds, a lot of other people and a host of Australian bands. Um, So they played in a field as they did in those days. Uh, But they also announced a series of shows in Melbourne only, which was Talking Heads, supported by uh, Pretenders played two nights and then you had Simple Minds supported by the Eurythmics on another two nights. Mm, and so the it was venue, uh, like
2: a th- Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday.
1: Something like that. And the venue yep. was? The Entertainment Centre. Right. And this was early 1984. Yeah, this know. was it uh, late, late January. Late January. And, month-
2: and, and this, this was actually about six weeks or so after the actual shows if i stop making sense we'll record it right, in, in la
1: LA, that's right so the movie hadn't come out at that point so we we hadn't seen the film mm, so neither. we we had no idea what this what show to expect Yeah, was,
2: was going to be like but but we'll,
1: but we'll get to that next. but um any in any case uh the band that i was in had the support to the rhythmic show in brisbane that was the only one of the four bands that came to brisbane i believe um so of course That was fantastic, but at the same time they were doing these shows in Melbourne and I was a huge Talking Heads fan, a huge Simple Minds fan. So I had already bought tickets to these shows before this gig was announced. So there was no question of me missing out on this. Uh, So I, I called Graham the other chap in the podcast here, and he stepped into the breach. He'd never played guitar before. <laughs> it was the first time. <laughs> he was a made, professional piccolo player. He was, he, he'd done a few other things. No, he had played <laughs> guitar before. But the, my, my guitar parts were so simple that he managed to play them. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to better. play harmonica, but there was no <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> room for that he, he played the show at the Festival Hall in Brisbane and did a sterling job, Brought the house down. And, um,
2: Never mind, there'd be other gigs for you, Mark. That's
1: right. There'd be bigger and better things ahead. Supporting
2: even bigger bands than For Eurydics. me,
1: but uh, I, I I always regret missing the show and I'm glad Graham got to do it. But the show in Melbourne, the Talking Heads show was, I don't know if it was worth missing out, but it was <laughs> certainly an incredible concert and mm. one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life in 1984.
2: Yeah. And it, it was an extraordinary um, uh, contrast between the resolutely no-frills rock and roll of... Pretenders and Chrissy Hine is absolutely like as the sound is as uh, stripped down and as pure. It's and rock and as, yeah and roll. Yeah, and as utterly no nonsense. Mm. And so to see Pretenders play their set and, you know, excellent songs and you go, okay, it would be really interesting to, to see talking heads were, and talking heads then produced the most extraordinary theatrical extravaganza well
1: it was art wasn't it it really was they, mm. they maintained that they weren't an art experience but mm. that show really was a combination yeah of well
2: podcasting. literally seeing a singer from a big band come out on stage at like quite a big venue plonk a cassette player down and 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 press play it's hard to kind of really describe how incredible that was Mm. to witness. It was Mm. it was really kind of rub rub your eyes and go, you know, am am I really seeing this?
1: Yeah. But you missed that, right? (laughs) (laughs) I did. (laughs) I actually feel like I did. I'd
0: love to have seen them talking at that stage.
2: Clips of that tour on YouTube somewhere though, surely. Well, the whole movie. fortunately they made a film. Possibly, but I've seen a this film. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that probably brings us to the end. To the end. of, Well, we could go on because there was the Little Creatures album. Which which uh, would have had about three or four hits on it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Naked, was that a big hit too? Uh, Yeah, well, there
2: was the True Stories album subsequent to that and then, then the Naked album. But I guess for our purposes, 1983 is probably a good point to, to stop plus the subsequent albums were kind of much more probably mainstream.
1: Well, we should talk about the fact that they played New Zealand just after this. Uh, yes, yes. The, um, the, the, the shows we saw
2: were mm. either their third or fourth last shows ever because mm. they they played two gigs in New Zealand mm. after the Melbourne shows and that was basically it.
1: That was their their final shows. And, mm. and, 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 and Tina shows Weymouth, didn't go that great. Tina Weymouth said it was their worst gig ever. Their final <laughs> show was the worst gig they ever did. Mm. Uh, because David wouldn't go on stage at one point. He didn't want to play this festival to a bunch of people dancing in the rain. He was just not interested and it became very difficult and um, a real sad ending for them at that stage. And there's still a bit of acrimony, you know, between the members of the band to this day, you know. Yeah. It's a a sad one but the music stands the test of time.
2: Mm. They did reunite to be, what, installed, is that the term, Uh, in the... Rock and Roll Hall of Fame hmm. in the last few years,
1: but there's no chance of them ever getting back together doesn't, again. Doesn't David, sound David like it. There was a
0: rumor like last year that they were considering getting back to, together, but um, it seems to have disappeared
1: again. I think he just does his own things, David Byrne. He's you know quite prolific in his own way. I don't think the other guys are doing much now.
2: Well, he's got all sorts of musical projects. He writes books. He mm. does a lot of cycling.
1: We should get together with craft. <laughs> <laughs> like t- to b- back to your early, earlier point, yeah, those five albums are very representative of the time. Mm. Um, as good and as innovative as anything that was out there. And they were willing to experiment, to try different things, to push themselves, to look different, to sound different. Um, and I think as in terms of post-punk, they were one of the most important bands, certainly the American bands anyway, there's only a handful that really would rate a mention in my opinion. They are as post-punk as it gets.